let me pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, and may, as I speak, may these words be for the building up of your church. In Jesus Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Amen. So when I was in college, our student housing wasn't split into upper and lower class dorms. They were only split into dorms for men and dorms for women. So on my floor, there were 30 other guys, freshmen through seniors. You, would, you could stay on your floor all four years. And since you could be there for four years, the floors kind of developed their own cultures. There were mascots and traditions and rivalries, floors pulling pranks on each other, things like that. So I lived all four years on the 17th floor of Culbertson Hall, Culby 17. By the time I was a junior, we had developed a pretty strong culture that revolved around one single phrase, we don't do things. So if a freshman were to ask, what are we gonna do for the homecoming rally? Sorry, that sounds like a thing, and uh, we don't do things. <laughs> what are we gonna do for the Mr. Moody pageant? Well, nothing, because that would be a thing. We don't do things. Enthusiasm was suppressed so that we could maintain our too-cool-for-school reputation. <laughs> now, okay, this might sound really silly, but every group of people does this in one way or another. Any defined group, from book clubs to sports fans to the PTA, there are unwritten rules, sometimes written, sometimes unwritten rules, about what it means to belong. There are important rules that define behavior. So what does it mean to be part of Colby 17, it meant you don't do things. What does it mean to be on the PTA? Well, it means you're involved and active in the life of the school. There are meetings you have to go to, but then it's expected that you would bring, you know, paper plates to the events, things like that, you know. You get the idea. This morning, I want us to think about what it means to be gospel people, to be people who are defined by the good news of Jesus. So on Easter Sunday, Mark Shibley challenged us with this fork in the road, right? Which path were we going to walk, the one of bondage or the one of freedom in Christ? And today I want to think about what does it mean for us once we've chosen that road of freedom? What does it mean to be people who are along the way? Now, the, the books of the New Testament were written for the most part to help answer this question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be gospel people? The gospel prompts us to live differently, because of Jesus, because of the cross and the resurrection, the world has fundamentally changed. We have fundamentally changed, and so we're called to act like it. So that's how the New Testament writers frame the question. Since Jesus is raised from the dead, and we are a new creation, therefore, dot, 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 fill in the blank. So in our reading from 1 Peter, he makes it clear that we've been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed ransomed from those feudal ways that we inherited from our ancestors with the pre precious blood of Christ. And this is good news. Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And Peter is writing to these dispersed Jewish Christians who have been scattered away from Jerusalem. So we expect it to be lots of comfort. So it's jarring for us to read him say, if you invoke the Father as one who judges impartially according to each person's work, live in fear during the time of your exile. It sounds a little harsh. We can't really imagine that being a very popular worship song that we'd, we'd listen to all the time, right? Live in fear. But it's not too different from what Paul says in Philippians, that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Or James, who says that faith without works is dead, that when we say we believe something but don't act like it, we have to wonder what that faith is really like. 
Or maybe John, who in his first letter says that if we say we are without sin, we are liars. And in doing so, we're not actually showing our love for God. The standard is high. Peter points out that it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy, straight out of Leviticus 11. And he's just echoing the same kind of thing he heard when he was hanging out with Jesus, who told the crowds that their holiness had to exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, faced with these sorts of challenges, it's pretty easy to live in fear. It's easy to despair in that moment, right? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know we are flawed and that our sin grieves us. Friends, uh, as Frederick Buechner puts it, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. It's tragedy before it's comedy. We are broken, flawed people who need help. We live in a world that is a flawed and broken place in need of help. The church is a flawed and broken place. Dare I say it, our church, like everywhere else, is a flawed and broken place. The call is coming from inside the house, as it were. But of course, the gospel isn't just bad news. It's bad news, but then it's good news. So yes, our reading from 1 Peter lays out some exhortations for us prepare our minds for action, disciplining ourselves. But the hope isn't in ourselves. Peter says, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. We strive, but we don't set our hope on our own ability to strive. As Christians, we know we can't do this on our own. We put all of our hope on the one who is promised to offer us grace. Now, Peter has a lot of experience pointing people to Jesus, right? Because not only did he write these letters, but today we read from his first sermon after Pentecost. Now the sermon happens right after these tongues of fire have fallen from heaven and everyone is hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. We'll celebrate that in a few weeks on Pentecost. Uh, but Peter stands up to explain. Everyone's confused what has just happened here. So he, he finishes explaining and the people are cut to their hearts and they ask, well, what should we do? Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus, that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. We are repent and be baptized people. So the way we enter into the kingdom is actually the same as the way we live in the kingdom, or at least it kind of sets the tone. The way in which we make that first choice at the crossroads is at the heart of how we walk the path after baptism. Baptism is that sacramental entry into the family of God. It is itself an act of repentance. Baptism is an act of saying we are in need of transformation and a reception of the grace of God by uniting us to his death and resurrection. And so part of what defines us as gospel people is that the way in which we do everything rests not on pride but on grace. Everything rests on our inability to do it for ourselves and our need for God who has promised grace for us. Repent and believe the gospel is our bread and butter. But let's step back for a second. We've got to define our terms. What is the gospel? What did Peter mean when he said, believe in the gospel? Now we're Christians. We've all been Christian for a while. Easy question, right? But I want to unpack it a bit. In 2010, I heard Scott McKnight, a New Testament professor at Northern Seminary, and he's now an Anglican canon theologian. He gave this talk entitled, Did Jesus Preach the Gospel? Which sounds like a self-evident question. The answer is, of course, yes. But if the gospel is put your faith in Jesus so that your sins can be forgiven, that's not really at the heart of Jesus' teaching, his life or ministry. He didn't preach that on the 
on the four side of the cross. It's not really in the main body of Peter's sermon either. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not contradicting what Paul says in Romans 10, that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. I'm not contradicting what Peter says when he tells those people on Pentecost to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Those things are all true. <laughs> you don't need to run me out of the church just yet. But those are responses to the gospel, not the gospel itself. Let's look at two examples we have of people preaching about Jesus after his resurrection. So if you go back and read Peter's whole sermon in Acts 2, his main point, the thing he tries to get across, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, God's promises to David, and that in raising him from the dead, we see that he is both Lord and Messiah. And Jesus does a similar thing on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. So they're heartbroken and despondent about Good Friday, confused about what they had heard on Easter Sunday, and Cleopas and this other disciple start to chat with this stranger they meet on the road. And seemingly, out of the blue, this stranger explains things about Jesus and his ministry, about what happened that fateful weekend, that the Messiah should suffer and enter into his glory. And he does so, he starts with Moses and the prophets and explains all the things in scripture that point to Jesus. Don't miss this, that when Jesus is given an opportunity to help these disciples out of their confusion, he doesn't start saying, everyone's a sinner in need of grace and there's a gap between us and God and the cross fits in, right? That's not the, the thing that Jesus preaches. Instead, he explains how his death and resurrection were a part of his role as Messiah, the Messiah that God promised. And we see the same thing kind of play out in other sermons given in Acts. There are a few sermons we have in Acts that the early church preaches, and they all do a similar thing. For instance, Stephen, before he's stoned to death, lays out the whole story of the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, the promises made to him, to Moses, and to David, and showing how it all ultimately points to Jesus. That the whole story, God's redemptive story, points to Jesus, but he tells the whole thing. So what is the gospel? I think it's really helpful. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The gospel, the good news of what the creator God has done in Jesus, is first and foremost news about something that happened. And the first and most appropriate response to that news is to believe it. God has raised Jesus from the dead and thereby declared in a single powerful action that Jesus really has launched the long-awaited kingdom and that his death really was the moment when and the means by which the evil of all the world was defeated at last. And when the alarm clock goes off, this is what it says. Here's the good news. Wake up and believe it. The gospel isn't less than the fact that you, even you, even I, have been redeemed and saved and forgiven, but it's actually bigger than that. The disciples, as they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus, gave witness to a new reality. Jesus was alive. Sin and death had been defeated. Because of that, you get to turn away from yourself and your sin and towards Jesus and have your sins forgiven to become repent and be baptized people. And once you've done that, you're welcomed in, into this new life as a citizen of this new kingdom. This new kingdom that doesn't prioritize power and status and fame and money, a way that looks upside down but is actually right side up. This is the path of holiness that Peter calls us to. As Paul puts it, we confess that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. The result of the gospel is what happens. We believe and we're forgiven. 
Now, this is gonna feel a little bit like splitting hairs, but I think it's really important because we have to remember that when we're called to declare Jesus, we're not called to sell personal benefits, right? We're not making a pitch of all the benefits and great things you can have. That's how people sell Amway. That's how pyramid schemes work. That's not the gospel. God heals, but we don't believe because God heals. We believe because the powers of death and hell were trampled under his feet. When the gospel is reduced to just the benefits we get, we're trying to pitch to people that, you know, the benefits outweigh the costs. Instead of being heralds telling the world that victory has been won. It's sort of as a brief history lesson. It's, it's like after the USSR crumbled and the Iron Curtain fell, we're going into East Germany to tell people, hey, you can buy blue jeans now and Coca-Cola. I mean, yes, that is true. The Iron Curtain fell and, and Western capitalism came in, but there's a bigger story to tell, right? It's not just, hey, you can have new economic opportunity. It's that the communist Russia fell. That's the news we declare. We declare victory. We declare that death has been defeated. And it turns out that that's pretty good news for us in our personal lives. <laughs> but to return to our question, though, what, if that's what the gospel is, what does it look like for us to be gospel people? So our passages this morning give us this incredible look into what the life of the repent and be baptized people looked like. So in Acts, there are 3,000 people who are saved and they're baptized. They declare that Jesus is Lord. They receive their forgiveness of sins and they form the church. And it describes the community this way. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I wanna walk through each of these. So first, they're dedicated to the apostles' teaching, which is what we have in the New Testament. To be gospel people is to be studying God's word together that we can grow in our knowledge of God. As one of our Anglican prayers puts it, we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. Not as individuals, the Bible is never meant to be a thing that we study apart from the body of Christ, but as a community, as we look at it together, as it cuts to our hearts, as it shows us who we really are, as it shows us who God really is. This isn't the same as becoming big fans of you know, Lord of the Rings. We can all love Lord of the Rings and we can debate the particularities of whether or not recent TV shows match the books. That's fun. Studying the Bible is different though because it changes us. But it changes us for the better when we do it together. Because I'm sure we all know someone who has read scripture on their own and said, I figured it out, I've got this new insight. And it leads them astray because they haven't actually brought it back to the community of faith. They were in fellowship with one another. They were together. Now, a lot is made of the financial decisions the early church made, right? Selling everything they have, pooling their resources, and distributing it freely. Now, I'm not sure that means we have to do the same, although to be clear, there are some people who have chosen that way of life, and I admire them for it. To be honest, we're going on a mission trip to spend some time with them this summer, the Jesus people in Chicago. At the very least, though, I think we need to think of that kind of fellowship that comes when you commit your economic life to others. It's a choice to say that the church, the people of God, are my true family. Fellowship is not just hanging out sometimes. It's, a, it's an important piece of it, but it's an active choice to knit our lives together. It's an active choice to say we belong together. We belong to each other. It's committing to a local community to say, 
I can't be a Christian connected to the body of Christ in the abstract. Yes, everybody we encounter who's a Christian is through baptism and through Eucharist. We're in communion together. But it's very easy to love and care for people. It's very hard to love and care for persons. Because <laughs> real people you have to actually spend time with can annoy you. You can, you can put up with someone's annoying features for like an afternoon, no problem. But when we commit our lives to each other, we start to encounter each other's rough edges. But it's there where we actually get to learn and care for each other. It's there where we actually have to learn about ourselves, maybe receive from other people. How else can you possibly care for someone at their lowest point if you haven't committed to them? How else could we possibly be like the early church who were known as the people who took in the elderly, the orphan, the widow, and the sick, abandoned people who society had cast off? We can't do that as a dispersed bunch of individuals. We can only do that as the church because the care and resources it takes to lift people who are at their lowest point is more than any one person can do on their own. We live in a world in which loneliness is at an all-time high, and the church becomes the place where you can truly know others and truly be known. Then there's the breaking of the bread. And on a surface level, this means sharing meals together. And there's something really wonderful about sharing meals. It's why I really push for our life groups to kind of start with eating a meal together or sharing a snack together. There's something about breaking bread in the sort of generic sense that's good. But of course, it's so much more than that. It's really helpful when we read the New Testament to remember that the New Testament was written decades after the events that happened, right? The, the New Testament is written decades after Jesus. So anytime we read about breaking bread and Jesus known in the breaking of the bread, it's written to communities who have been practicing the Lord's Supper, perhaps weekly, for decades. The recipients had already been reenacting the Last Supper, so much so that the Romans thought they were cannibals for always all this eating flesh and drinking blood talk. So when any New Testament writer talks about breaking bread, the church of that day could only hear it in the context of the Lord's Supper, or at least it had to invoke that idea. And why does this particular ritual matter? Well, because the death and resurrection of Jesus are the very climax of the gospel. In Jesus's death and resurrection, we see that he is Messiah. And when we gather together to remember it, this morning when we gather together to remember it, we don't just remember it in our heads, but we reenact it and remember it in a way that brings it into the present. It brings God's presence into the present. Because yes, God is everywhere. There's no place where we can get away from him. And there are times that maybe we sense God's presence in greater or lesser degrees. We all have those moments where it feels like, like that, that veil between heaven and earth is thin. But for millennia, the church has recognized that when we share this bread and wine together, God is present to us in a special and unique way. That in the sacrament, God bestows grace to us. To be gospel people is to be formed by the sacramental remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection. To encounter God's grace, which unites us to him and to each other in this particular and special way. And then there's the prayers. It's not, it's not hard to talk about prayers at St. Luke's. Prayer is our speaking and listening to God. It's how we cast our cares on him because he cares for us. It's how we lift each other up. It's how we give thanks. Prayer shapes us as gospel people because the good news of Jesus is about something that happened, but its effects continue on. 
And in prayer, we open-handedly bring ourselves to the God who is still telling the story. And as the repercussions of the gospel, of that event, reverberate out of that first Easter Sunday, prayer is how we take the still brokenness of the world, those places that are not yet healed, maybe in us, in our communities, in our church, and we bring it to the one who heals. Jesus, who is Lord, whom God raised from the dead, and the one who sends us out to be ambassadors, the heralds proclaiming that same good news. Prayer is how we take it all and we hold it up to God and we ask God to do what only God can do. Now, our, our weekly Anglican liturgy is not the perfect biblical form of worship, right? Lots of other churches do great things and worship God and our gospel people just like we are. But I think it's pretty cool to notice that every week we do all of these things. We gather together as a community. We, we offer each other peace. After we hear we're forgiven, we look each other in the eyes and we say, God's peace be with you. We pray for each other. We pray for the world. We hear from God's word and we remember Jesus' resurrection and the breaking of the bread. It's a cool moment. It's a microcosm that's meant to be the foundation of our whole lives as a church. It's why I am glad, it hasn't always been the case, but I'm glad that weekly Eucharist has become sort of a normative thing in the Anglican church because it continues to unite us together. We gather for this whole service to do all these things together so that hopefully our whole weeks are the same. At its core, being gospel people means that we don't think in terms of possessing or getting salvation. Our main goal isn't to get tickets punched. We do not proclaim first and foremost that you can get some benefits from following Jesus. It's true that there are benefits, but to be gospel people is to tell each other the good news that Jesus is Lord. And in pointing to Jesus, we live a life that forms us, individuals and a community, more and more into gospel people, into God's people. Our foundation is that we're baptism and repentance people, that when we are convicted, we turn to Jesus who offers us his grace. We don't do it alone. The life of the gospel is the life of the church. There are no islands in the kingdom of God. I pray that we learn to repent and turn to God by engaging with each other, fully investing ourselves in what goes on here on Sunday mornings, but also gathering together during the week, praying for each other, enjoying time with each other, committing ourselves to each other in such a way that it costs us. Because in doing so, we do the same thing that Jesus did, laying down his life for the sake of others, being slow to speak, quick to listen. This isn't just like, hey guys, let's all be good friends. <laughs> This is a volitional choice to say, I want to belong to Jesus. And there's a particular instance of Jesus' church right here that we can commit to. The only reason we can do this is because Jesus is raised from the dead, the fulfillment of God's promises, promises that he made to Abraham and to David, promises he made because when he looked at a broken world, he did not leave us but made a way for everything to be restored doing so through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And because of that, the kingdom of God has arrived. We're all invited to enter into it, belong to Christ, belong to each other, and be heralds of the gospel. I pray this morning that we may be gospel people, declaring that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, and that when others look on our church, may they see that we are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, all to the glory of God. Amen.